This is an uprising against smug elites. Smug elites. So they're the villains, and the opposite is America. Because America is now one big gay disco. Yes, yes, I that's am not, That's not evil? Being hostile to all mankind and subversive is not evil? Well, I have to say that because St. Paul said the Jews are enemies of the entire human race. They are. What do you think of Jordan Peterson? Uh, did you see the video about where he said I can't do it? Adam, I'm trying to do you a favor. You're fighting for the gay disco. Don't make your ignorance normative for the rest of us. Don't, don't use those kinds of slurs. You're fighting for the gay disco. What, are there are no slurs here. Die for the gay disco. This is an uprising against smug elites. Smug elites. So they're the villains. And the opposite is Definitely our most requested guest, uh, Dr. E. Michael Jones, a man who needs no introduction. I mean, it is. That, that's what they That's what they pay the Rockefeller Foundation to do. Uh, you're not supposed to know what I just told you. They didn't know about this. They didn't know what we know now. I mean, is there any argument you can use to wake them up? Yeah, I think uh, God had a plan for your life. Well, you'd be jerking off to every curvy piece of driftwood you saw at the beach. Fight the people who don't like disco. Maybe you would. And you're consistently refusing to talk about pornography. Uh, Pete Buttigieg yes. seems to be the exhibit A of that process. Yes, yes. Because you think that the anus is a sex organ, don't you, Pete? One uh, Richard Spencer hands out spears and he says, charge the machine gun nest. Dr. Jones. Sorry. <laughs> Not all of the heads of the Federal Reserve were Jews, but after a certain period of time, uh, that seemed to be the case. Hello and welcome to another episode of EMJ Live. It's a beautiful, hot summer day in South Bend, Indiana. And uh, I just got done listening to an um, interview with uh, Kim Iverson talking about um, Robert F. Kennedy and why he blew up his campaign. If you haven't missed, you haven't seen this, he uh, came out and uh, said something about COVID and then uh, the mainstream media got mad and uh, they tried to lynch him. And then uh, because they said he was an anti-Semite. And then at this point, Rabbi Shmuley comes and rescues him. This is good cop, bad cop. Uh, and uh, so the left is now, this is a left-wing operation. They're talking about, well, what? I guess we can't vote for Kennedy. What's going on here? And the guy, uh, Jadula, that he's talking to says, well, it's, it's the Holocaust. Well, that's exactly right. That's why I wrote the book called The Holocaust Narrative, because that determines every single narrative that we have in this culture. And uh, no exception to the rule was the movie Oppenheimer. Um, big, Probably the biggest movie of the summer, certainly the most serious movie. I don't know whether Barbie made more money, but it's certainly the most serious movie because it's dealing with a serious issue by a serious guy by the name of Christopher Nolan. 
And uh, if you've seen it, you know that uh, the beginning of the movie, uh, Nolan goes out of his way to establish that the Manhattan operation was Jewish. It was a Jewish operation from start to finish, okay? And the main Jew in charge of it was uh, Oppenheimer. So we're treated to, uh, he meets uh, Mr. Strauss, Louis Strauss, um, and Strauss goes out of his way to say his name is pronounced Straws because he comes from the South and he's an assimilated Jew. But when you're Jew talking Jew to Jew here, he says, uh, you know, but whatever way you say it, uh, uh, I'm Jewish. Uh, oh, that's what Oppenheimer says. He responds. And then Straws says, I'm president of Temple Emanuel in, uh, in Manhattan. And uh, then they get together, they bond, and they, Straws says, I think you'll be very happy here. He's referring to the Institute for Advanced Studies in, at Princeton. Okay, so that's one uh, a bonding, Jewish bonding episode. There's another one more important at the beginning of the film, roughly 10 minutes into the film, where he meets Isidore Isaac Rabi. Uh, another Jew who ends up working on the uh, on the Manhattan Project. Robbie begins the conversation by saying, it's a long way to Zurich. If you get any skinnier, we're going to lose you between the seat cushions. I'm Robbie. Oppenheimer says, I'm Oppenheimer. Robbie, I caught your lecture on molecules, caught some of it for a couple of New York Jews. How do you know Dutch? Well, I thought I'd better learn it when I get here. You learn enough Dutch in six weeks to give a lecture on quantum mechanics, and this is to show how smart he is. Oppenheimer says, I had to challenge myself. Robbie, quantum physics wasn't challenging enough, Spitz. Oppenheimer says, Spitz, and Robbie says, show off, and Oppenheimer says, ha, Dutch in six weeks, says Robbie, but you don't know Yiddish? Oppenheimer, I don't speak it so much at my side of the park. And at this point, he's adverting to that animosity in New York City between the German Jewish immigrants who came in the middle of the 19th century and the uh, Ostjuden, the Ashkenazi that came, they're Ashkenazi too, but I mean the, from the shtetl uh, who came at the beginning of the 20th century. The, they, the, Ost, the uh, Germans held those people in contempt and that comes out in this uh, little incident here, a little conversation. So Robbie says, screw you. Are you homesick? And he says, oh, you know it. And then <laughs> Robbie says, ever get the feeling that our kind, our kind isn't entirely welcome here? And then Oppenheimer jokingly says, you mean physicist? And Robbie says, that's funny. And he says, not in the department. And then Robbie says, they're all Jewish. Uh, and then he says, eat, and then there, but there's a German you have to seek out. And Oppenheimer gets it immediately, and he says, Heisenberg? And Robbie says, right. In other words, we're getting to the heart of the matter here. This is a German-Jewish issue. The Manhattan Project is a totally Jewish uh, application of the quantum mechanics of the German physicist uh, Werner Heisenberg. Now, it gets more intense here. Uh, when uh, Oppenheimer meets with General Groves to begin a discussion of the uh, bomb project. And so um, Groves says to him, so how would you proceed? Oppenheimer, you're talking about turning theory into practical weapon system faster than the Nazis. Groves, who have a 12 months head start. Oppenheimer, 18 months. Groves, how can you possibly know at that? Oppenheimer, our fast neutron research took six months and the man they've undoubtedly put in charge would have made that leap instantly. Groves, who do you think they put in charge? 
Oppenheimer, Werner Heisenberg. He has the most intuitive understanding of atomic structure I've ever seen. Groves, you know his work. Oppenheimer, I know him. In a straight race, the Germans win. We've got one hope, Groves, which is Oppenheimer, anti-Semitism. What, says Groves? Oppenheimer, Hitler called quantum physics Jewish science, set it right to Einstein's face. Our one hope is that Hitler is so blinded by that he's denied Heisenberg proper resources because it'll take vast resources. Our nation's best scientists working together. Right now, they're scattered, which gives up groves, which gives us compartmentalization. Oppenheimer, all minds have to see the whole task. Uh, to contribute efficiently. Poor security may cost us the race. Efficiency will. The Germans know more than us anyway, Grove says, but the Russians don't. That scene encapsulates the entire gamut of Nolan's film. Uh, and it's interesting because it cannot be found in K. Bird's uh, American Prometheus, which is the basis of the film. In other words, Nolan made this up completely obviously taking drawing from material that's in the book, but putting it together in a way that he's trying to make a point. The point is that, uh, first of all, Jewish scientists were the driving force behind the Manhattan Project. Without them and Oppenheimer, the project would not have succeeded. Secondly, the Jews who ran the project were beholden to Heisenberg as the man who came up with the theoretical basis for quantum mechanics. Jews like Oppenheimer and Rob could only fill in the gaps in the framework. So it's a battle here between Heisenberg, the German, and Oppenheimer, the Jew. That's what it's being uh, claimed, uh, claimed to be. This is uh, also significant because just as uh, Oppenheimer was in charge of the American program, Heisenberg was in charge of the German program. And they try to give some indication that... Uh, he was constrained by what the Nazis called Jewish science, but that's not the case. Heisenberg deliberately thwarted the successful completion of the Nazi bomb project because of the Christian formation of his conscience that took place while he was growing up a Protestant in Catholic Bavaria. Secondly, fourthly, I'm sorry, there's no evidence that Oppenheimer uh, would have mentioned anti-Semitism to a goy like General Groves. By exerting this fictional dialogue into his film, Nolan is telling us that the Jews who worked on the Manhattan Project justified their participation in creating a weapon of mass destruction that was going to be deployed against civilians by making it part of the Holocaust narrative. So this film is once again part of the Holocaust narrative. Fifth thing... Uh, Groves brings up the Russians at this point, and at that point, Nolan is telling us that the fact that the Jews who were involved in the Manhattan Project all had divided loyalties. They had to get security clearances from the American government to work on the Manhattan Project, but their natural inclination was to support the then current manifestation of the Jewish revolutionary spirit, which was communism, which is another way of saying that their first loyalty was to the Soviet Union. They saw the Soviet Union as the only hope to pr protect Jews from slaughter in Europe. They saw this in 1943, which is the crucial moment uh, that we're talking about, and that is at least one year before America got involved. 
This was the crucial turning point, okay? Now, the question is, what happened in 1943? Well, in order to explain that, we have to tell you what happened in 1936. Okay, in 1936, Opie met a young woman, 22-year-old woman by the name of Jean Tatlock. She was 20 years old when Opie met her in 1936. And according to Bird, Jean Tatlock, quote, opened the door for Robert into this world of politics. This world meaning the politics of the Communist Party. That happened in 1936. But again, the crucial year is in 1943. What happened in 1943? A lot happened in 1943, but from the point of view of the film, it, which is slightly confusing because of the constant back and forth, uh, Groves comes into uh, Oppenheimer and says, there's something wrong here. We're worried you're going to lose your security clearance to work on the bomb. You have to break off all of your associations with communists. Well, the main association he had with communists was the affair that he was having with Gene Tatlock. And so in one of those unnecessary uh, sex scenes, the two of them were sitting there naked and basically uh, Oppenheimer breaks off his relationship with, with uh, Gene. Oppenheimer broke off contact with her in mid-1943 in order to maintain his security clearance. Oppenheimer's cold-blooded choice of his career over the woman who had been his lover and comrade in arms broke her heart because, in Jean's eyes, Opie's callous rejection made it seem as if ambition had trumped love. Byrd considers Tatlock as the first casualty of Oppenheimer's directorship of Los Alamos, but he fails to consider a more important point. After Opie dumped Tatlock in mid-1943, atomic secrets began making their way from Los Alamos to the Soviet Union. Why is that? The answer is guilt. The answer is guilt. And the man who talked about the relationship between guilt and the Communist Party was Stephen Spender, who was the editor and one of the main contributors to a book that came out in 1940-something, late 40s, 49, I believe, called The God That Failed. Why were people attracted to communism? Because of guilt, according to Spender. This, this, this is what he wrote. The doubly secured communist conscience also explains the penitential confessional attitude which non-communists may sometimes show toward orthodox communists with their consciences anchored, if not petrified, in historic materialism. In other words, historic materialism is the philosophy that you're just some type of insignificant conglomeration of atoms that's being swept along by this river known as historic materialism, and nothing else matters. And so if you're uh, plagued with guilt, you can tell, tell yourself, well, I'm big part of some bigger cause, which all has this moral underpinning. You're just kind of helping the oppressed. And this will absolve your conscience of guilt. There is something, Spender continues, there is something overpowering about the fixed conscience. 
There was a certain compulsion in the situation of the communist with his faith reproving the liberal whose conscience swings from example to example, misgiving to misgiving, supporting here the freedom of some writer outside the writer's syndicate, some socially consciousness surrealist perhaps, here a Catholic priest, here a liberal professor in jail. What power there is in conscience which reproaches us not only for vices and weaknesses, but also for virtues such as pity for the oppressed, if they happen to be the wrong oppressed or love for a friend, maybe Jean Tatlock, if he's not a good party member, if she is a good party member, a conscience which tells us that by taking up certain political position today, we can attain a massive granite-like superiority over our own past without being humble or simple or, to get to the point here, guilty but simply by virtue of converting the whole of our personality into raw material for the use of the party machine. So the party machine is a machine that absolves your conscience of guilt. So it's like confession if you're a Catholic. It's a sacrament that relieves your conscience of guilt, except that it doesn't, okay? Uh, he had to, so he had to break with the party he had to break with Gene Tatlock to, to break all of his associations with the Communist Party. And at that point, he felt guilty. And the guilt got even worse because uh, Tatlock committed suicide on January 4th, 1944, a few months after he, he dumped her. Uh, at this point, uh, he is going to, he's driven into a corner by his own actions. And the corner is known as the Jewish revolutionary spirit, which is the main way that the Jew exonerates himself from guilt. And I'm talking all the way back to the destruction of the temple when the, the Jew had no way of expiating guilt anymore. What followed within a very short period of time was the Jewish revolutionary movement in Palestine at that time. First, the, the, uh, the, the insurrection that led to the destruction of the temple, and then the uh, Bar Kokhba rebellion 60 years later. The second was certainly the result of the uh, lack of a temple to expiate guilt. Some, you could claim that the, the covenant ended uh, in, uh, when Christ died and that the veil of the temple was rent, uh, and that would have led to the accruing of guilt, and certainly in 70. But certainly by 135, there was no way to uh, expiate guilt other than involvement in revolutionary activity. And this is exactly the person, the, I'm sorry, this is exactly the position that Oppenheimer was in. In order to calm his conscience, he has to either directly get involved in sending the secrets to the Soviet Union, or he's got to turn away uh, and turn a blind eye to the fact that Weinstein and the other Jews are doing it for him. That's the gist of uh, what's, that's what's in the book. Uh, the details are in the article, the review of Oppenheimer, which will appear in Culture Wars. But there is uh, a, a relevance to what's going on right today. Okay, what, is, what does it make this film timely? It makes it, the time, fact is that he's dealing with a real issue, which is the Jewish issue, which is the biggest issue of our day. Kim Iverson just went through a long thing about, well, it's just, Israel is just one issue, 
and Kennedy's right on vaccines. No, first of all, you're misframing the issue as if it's Israel. Israel is a subset of the Jewish question. Israel is Jewish nationalism or Zionism. Jewish internationalism is known as communism, and those are the two pillars of Jewish identity in the 20th and 21st century. That's the issue. The issue is the Jewish question. The issue is the Jewish revolutionary spirit. And Nolan, to his credit, addresses the real issue by telling us at the beginning that the Manhattan Project was a Jewish project and then trying to follow through on that in a way that uh, Kay Bird does not in his book. Kay Bird obviously talks about Jews, talks about Oppenheimer as a, a Jew uh, growing up in New York, an assimilated Jew, the ethical culture society, but it's, a, it's an empty category. He can't fill it with some content like the Jewish revolutionary spirit. He doesn't have it, and so he can't understand it, okay? This is what makes this film timely. And it's especially timely, not just because of Robert Kennedy, his inability to address the issue. It's relevant because Anthony Blinken just chose Victoria Newland, the Jew Blinken choosing the Jew Newland to be his assistant, secret, assistant secretary of state. For those with short memories, Newland orchestrated the 2014 Ukrainian coup d'etat, which is the real start starting point of the current war. In 1943, Jewish traders began passing secrets to the Soviet Union. Eighty years later, the Jewish traders who make up Biden's minion have taken over Americans' foreign policy and are now trying to drag this country into a war which they plan to win by using nuclear weapons against China in a way eerily similar to the way the Jews used nuclear weapons from the Manhattan Project against Japan. This is the relevance of this movie. It's deja vu all over again. You lead, you let the Jews take over your foreign policy and you're going to have war. We all know that. That's what we knew that in Iraq. We knew that all in Syria and so on and so forth. But now it's the ante is being upped and now it's going to be nuclear war. You think I'm making this up? According to the communique, issued by the recent NATO summit in Vilnius. Do you remember, did you see the news reports of this? There was a really telling picture there of all of these uh, suave European diplomats standing there in their tailored suits, towering over the dwarf, the piano player Zelensky in his olive drab t-shirt, looking like uh, the guy nobody wants to talk about because the fix is in uh, Ukraine is not going to get into NATO, and Zelensky is just going to have to uh, fight this war to the last drop of Ukrainian blood before he gets into his villa on the uh, coast of Italy. According to the communique issued by the recent NATO summit in Vilnius, quote, the ambitions and coercive policies, close quote, of the People's Republic of China, not Russia, they're not talking about Russia, they're talking about China, these policies pose the chief threat to, quote, our interests, security, and values. In order to counter that threat, NATO is now preparing for, quote, 
a nuclear dimension of a crisis or conflict facilitating greater coherence between conventional and nuclear components of NATO's deterrence and defense posture across all domains and the entire spectrum of conflict. NATO is ready and able to deter aggression and manage escalation risks in a crisis that has a nuclear dimension. That's why this that's why this movie is relevant. I don't know. Obviously the movie was made before the uh, NATO got together in Vilnius in July, but anyone with a brain, and I assume that Nolan has a brain, could understand that since 2014, when the Jew Newland uh, orchestrated the coup, that we were heading toward nuclear war again. Uh, a replay of 1945, when the Jews were in charge of the Manhattan Project. That's my rant. Let's hear what you have to say. All right. Uh, welcome, guys, once again. This is Mike Bajakis, Dr. Jones' assistant. Uh, this is part of the program where we take questions from you guys uh, directly. Um, it's through our Telegram channel. Uh, links in description for those watching on our various programs. Um, I'll call on those who uh, raise their hands in Telegram. And then later in the stream, we'll read off text questions from Rumble and Cozy. There are no paid super chats required. And then basic rules. Try to keep uh, on subject. Try to keep the one question, be respectful of time, and do not forget to unmute yourself. All right, time to hop over here on my screen and pick somebody. Here we are. Uh, Aquarius guy. Go ahead, Aquarius guy. Yeah, hi. Thank you, Dr. Jones. God, that was stunning. You're, you're, you always deliver value, but that analysis was just absolutely fantastic. Thank you. Um, you're welcome. I understand, or I think I understand why the Jews hate Russia right now and what this ethnic conflict is in the Ukraine and Russia. Why do the Jews hate China? What is that? I don't get it. Why would yeah. they go to nuclear war with China? Yeah, look, all the Jews that go to Chinese restaurants in New York, you think they like the Chinese because of that. No, it's because America, uh, the empire, the American empire that the Jews control now through the Biden administration wants total control of the entire world. It's that simple. This is their global, their aspiration for global hegemony that they've been harboring ever since the temple was destroyed in 70 AD. This is going to be the return of Jewish hegemony. This is going to be the fulfillment of the Jewish revolutionary spirit. And they're going to use America as the the pretext, the mask that they will use as they advance forward. Well, it's like you've said, um, they always go one step too far. I can only pray that, you know, people are going to, I don't know if Trump can do anything, but I know he's not on board. With, he doesn't appear to be on board with his agenda from the statements and actions he's taken to China in the past. So I hope something happens that derails this insane plan it's like that scene at the end of uh, dr strangelove where the guy is riding the bomb down i feel like they want us to ride the bomb down we're all going to go up in a glorious blaze of destruction together no that yeah i i agree that was the fear that we had back then uh but uh, there's one uh, small fly in the ointment here uh before they can march on china they have to defeat russia and that ain't gonna happen that is not going to happen 
Uh, I don't know how many uh, uh, this this is an act of desperation bringing back Victoria Newland. This war is failing. This war is failing. It's been failing f from its inception. They are not going to conquer Russia and Russia is in my humble opinion going to be the scourge of God that is going to punish Europe for its decadence. That's my sense. They're going they're not going to get anywhere near China. It's not going to happen. Thank you. Thank you very much again for your talk. You're welcome. All right. Uh, next, we're going to go to MV, a regular here. MV. Go ahead, MV. Dr. Jones, that was a good analysis. I really liked it. Um, I've heard you talk about how this is, well, let me back up. For the Russians, I can see how this is an ex existential crisis. How right. they, you know, they don't want missiles on their border. They've got to fight this off. Now, I would argue that perhaps it's an existential crisis for the U.S. financial system, the world reserve currency, the out-of-control spending, the debt-GDP ratio, all of that. Now, it's not exclusively a Jewish problem, but I'm curious how you might relate that back to the practices of usury and how we actually got there. Absolutely. You're absolutely right. And I think that it is. It's an, let me give the analogy here. Russia is the body, the healthy body. The American empire is cancer. Now, what, what is existential for the healthy body is not the same as what is existential for cancer. A healthy body can exist all on its own. It takes care of itself. It heals itself. Cancer has to devour something else. Otherwise, it can't, it can't survive. And this is exactly the problem of the, the, uh, any financial system based on usury. Usury cannot be repaid, and so it constantly demands conquest, of a kind of cancerous conquest of other people's body politics so that it can absorb some, something there, some natural resource. Russia is full of natural resources, and kind of throw that meat to the wolves, the wolves of usury, so that you can just kick the can. I'm mixing my metaphors here, but so what? So you can kick the can <laughs> further down the road. That's exactly the point of a usurious, the usurious banking system that uh, is the United States uh, financial system. It's based on usury. Usury is cancer. I, I did first one of the first articles I ever wrote was on the etymology of the German word for cancer. Cancer is Wucherung. Uh, the German word for interest or for usury is Wucher. There's never been a, there's never been a clearer connection between cancerous growth and uh, a compound interest than in the German language, and that's precisely what's driving this thing. You have the Jews at the uh, sanctions office of the Treasury Department. It's always been a Jewish operation. It, it was run by Stuart Eisenstadt as a looting operation for Jewish interests when they looted the Swiss banks uh, for the uh, so-called Nazi gold thing. Eisenstadt just wrote another article saying how they're expanding Holocaust survivors. This is their act of desperation. They went too far. The Jews always go too far because they don't believe in Logos. And once you go too far, the thing breaks and Humpty, you know, all the king's horses and all the king's men can't put it back together again. And that's exactly what they did with this, their, their banking system. They broke it. They broke the dollar as the reserve currency by putting 40% of the world's population under sanctions. And now uh, a new system is emerging and they can't stop it and they're getting desperate be to spread their cancerous system and that's why they're talking about nuclear weapons 
Jesus. Well, I, I hope we're able to vote our way out of this problem versus something else. Thank you, Dr. Jones. Thank you. All right, thanks, MV. Uh, next, we're gonna have, let's see, Snake. Go ahead, Snake. You there, Snake? Your microphone's on. So if we can't hear anything, that must be on your end. Uh, all right. Sorry about that snake. Maybe we'll pick you up later. Let's go to ZG. Go ahead, ZG. Hello, Dr. Jones. Uh, it's an absolute honor. Huge fan of your work. Um, the legacy you leaving this earth is immeasurable in value to help understand future generations, the real source of tomorrow's problems. My question is, is Trump controlled opposition or is he a real threat to the establishment? He is a real threat to the establishment. There is no question about it. He came out of nowhere. Uh, he's every t he's been indicted now. Alan Dershowitz just did an analysis of the uh, indictment. It's preposterous. It's not going to go anywhere. It's just to keep him tied up with legal matters so that he doesn't run again. He's a real threat. Uh, but the problem is uh, he's completely incoherent. Uh, his position is completely incoherent. And he's uh, he, he's got the same problem every other candidate has in that he's it's irrational support of Israel. Even after Israel treated him like dirt, uh, the way Benjamin Netanyahu treated him after he, he uh, released uh, the great Jonathan Powell, the greatest traitor in American history, he can't seem to break this fixation. I don't know what it is. It's like, is it like uh, he's, the, he's the, the woman who is in love with the pimp? It's there's some type of irrational relationship here that he can't break, but he's a re he's a real phenomenon. There's no question about it, and that's why they're going after him. Thank you so much. Uh, just a really quick follow up: What is your opinion of Nicholas J. Fuentes of America First? I, I look. I I have to compare him to when I was his age, and he he's, he knows a lot more than I did when I was. 21 or whatever he is now, you know, uh, but the, so he's got this natural uh, talent for mobilizing people, you know, he's kind of like a natural leader, but uh, he, he, he lacks the depth. I mean, this is not a criticism. Who, who has depth when they're 21 years old? I mean, I didn't know my right hand from my left. I didn't know my ass from a hole in a wall when I was 21 years old. So he knows a lot more than I do, but it, like that whole, that whole thing with, with Kanye, that whole thing with Nick, Milo, and Kanye was just a disaster because nobody could sit down. Uh, like Kanye has an airplane, so therefore we don't have to think. And so there's a picture of all of them on that plane looking at their cell phones when they should have back, been back at some place on the ground thinking, well, what are we going to say? How are we going to deal with this thing? Kanye, you should have stuck with Harley Pasternak. That was the big issue here instead of going and saying exactly what the ADL wanted you to say. I'm just, I'm, I'm going on here. Uh, I'm just saying that they need more background. They need more depth. You know, that's, that's the problem. Thank you so much. Dr. You're welcome. Judge. All right. Uh, next we're gonna, uh, should we try snake? All right, snake. We'll give him another shot. 
Can you hear a snake? Your mic is on, snake. All right, that's it. That's it, snake. Snake! We'll get you next time. All right, um, let's see. It's BS Video Archive. All right, BS. Go ahead. Hello, uh, Dr. Jones. I had a question for you regarding the Faustian spirit. What are your thoughts on the tale of Faust? Uh, I have a chapter on Faust in the Baron Metal. Uh, I think Faust is about um, uh, usury. This is written in the German principalities at around the time when the money economy is coming into existence. Before that, uh, Germany, uh, you owed labor to the Lord and uh, you didn't need money. Uh, now you have to pay taxes and now you need money and where are you going to get the money? Well, uh, it's the Jew. The Jew will lend you money. And at this point, what you're talking about is a pact with the devil. I'm saying that if you borrow money, you're making a pact with the devil. That's the gist of, of Faust, I think. Uh, why is that? Well, oh. because if you, you look at uh, Dr. Faustus, uh, that's one story. Christopher Marlowe did uh, a story, Dr. Faustus. And what happens when you borrow money? You get anything you want. You can buy, you can have sex with Helen of Troy. You can do blah, blah, blah. And then suddenly you wake up. Oh, wait a minute. You're going to have to pay it back. And not only have to pay it back, I have to pay it back with interest. Why didn't you tell me that? And then the, 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 the operas that I've seen of Faust is basically the devil's holding up a contract at the end. There are various endings, but the devil shows up and says, basically, you signed the contract and you're going to hell. Well, that's the, the Germanic experience of usury in the 16th century. I think that's what it's about. Well, uh, thank you for your answer. And uh, yeah, I think it, it is uh, very, a very deep concept. Well, it's not that deep, but it's, it's like um, the consequences are seen everywhere, right? A lot of people just engaging with this usury system they don't right. realize they're right. engaging I, well, with that same kind. Of, right. Be, yep. be, before I forget, uh, uh, Faust Part Two uh, Goethe, of Goethe's play deals with money. <laughs> There's a whole thing about paper money in Faust, Part Two of Faust, which he based on John Law's experience when he became the finance minister of France. So I think that that the usury thing uh, is uh, 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 the hidden grammar of the Faust story. All right. Thank you very much. You're welcome. All right. Uh, next, we have uh, Jesse Engel. Go ahead, Jesse. Hi there. Can you hear me? I can. Great, great. Thanks for uh, allowing me to, uh, to ask the question. I, um, Dr. Jones, I, you said something a few streams back that kind of uh, put, you know, kind of shocked me and I've been trying to make sense of it ever since. And, and I, I don't remember the exact quote, but you said something like white boys are, I think Protestants who stopped going to church. Right. Um, and, and, you know, up until recently, I thought the term white supremacist was like a slur used exclusively by liberals against conservatives. But recently I've, I've come to learn that some conservatives are now attacking what they call white supremacy and you know i'm not totally sure what what it is conservatives are attacking but 
Um, I, it seems like some conservatives are embracing concepts from critical race theory, which I was under the impression was like a sort of evil communist idea from the Frankfurt School. And I guess it, I've been trying to formulate a question for you. And I guess all I can do is kind of ask a couple things and just see what you have to say. But I guess what I'm wondering is, what is to you the difference between race and ethnicity? Like, does a person who, like me, has like pale skin stop being white the minute they convert to Catholicism? Like, is that what you're saying? Um, like, what is going on with the term white supremacist? How do you understand it? And maybe lastly, can you recommend any resources to so that I could get a proper understanding of race and ethnicity? Yeah, read my uh, my ebook. It's it's on the Culture Wars website. Uh, Ethnos needs logos, and it's about uh, me spending a week in Guadalajara, Mexico, with David Duke, trying to convince him to become a Catholic, uh, because I'm saying that the uh, the ethnic identity in America is based on religion. This is not my theory. It's the triple melting pot theory. After three generations, you lose the language of your forebears. And you, but you retain the religion, and that's the ethnic identity. And uh, it's similar to Yugoslavia, where you had three ethnic groups based on three different religions. So instead of Protestant, Catholic, Jew, you had uh, Serb, Croat, and Muslim. Uh, I, ethnicity is based on language. Uh, uh, that's not the case in America because you lose your language. But in general, if you go to Africa, you'll find uh, ethnic groups. Uh, Kenya has 76 different ethnic groups. They all, they're all black, but they all speak different languages. And that's, that's where your identity comes from. So what I'm saying here is that over this period of time, uh, if you uh, stop going to church, uh, you lose your ethnic identity in America. That's not to say in other, all over the world, but I'm saying in America is a peculiar situation. And I'm saying that the very moment that this uh, Protestant Catholic Jew was codified by a, a book uh, by a, a rabbi named Will Herberg, so 1953, around that, 53, 54, uh, the United States government got behind race as the definitive characteristic. And that was the Supreme Court decision, uh, Brown versus School Board, which struck down segregation, which was an attack on the identity of that the South had developed after the Civil War, where basically they drove, it was called Reconstruction, they, uh, uh, Redemption, I'm sorry, where they basically drove the people, uh, the Yankees, out of the South and instituted a regime of segregation. Now, if you lived in the South at that point, the crucial difference was black and white. It's true. Uh, and I tried to explain this to uh, at the Sam Francis Memorial that that was not the situation in the northern cities like Philadelphia, where I grew up, where you had ethnic neighborhoods. And so the conflict came when Martin Luther King showed up in Chicago and uh, marched into Marquette Park and claimed the people were white and they all thought they were Lithuanians. So I'm saying that critical race theory is, you know, it's a racist ideology. It was created by a Jew from Harvard by the name of Noel Ignatiev. The Jews are behind critical race theory because they've been trying to turn blacks into revolutionaries ever since the founding of the NAACP. Okay, that's what they're doing. You can't have black without white. It's a binary thing here. 
And so this is the identity. So I'm saying you're only white. The only reason a Lithuanian from Market Park is white is because there's a black guy across the street. So am I saying that your skin isn't white? No, I'm not saying that. I'm saying that that fact becomes the, that is a category of reality. And then what happens is a category of the mind gets superimposed on that to control it. And I'm saying if you identify as black or white, you're being controlled by an operation outside of you that for political purposes. This is the very beginning. The first time that white was ever used to describe people was in a play that was put on in London at the beginning of the 17th century. And it was about Virginia. That's the first time that we had white because in Virginia you had white slaves and you had black slaves and you had to divide them by creating uh, animosity here by favoring one over the other nothing has changed that is the instrument of control in the united states of america basically favoring one group over another so at one point maybe they favored white people over black people now they obviously favor black people over white people but Wherever you have this dichotomy, it's always a, a category of the mind that is created for political control. That's not your identity. Do you consider, do you consider uh, Jews to be a race or, or Africans to be a race? Like, do, does race exist to you or do you, do you think more in terms of, of like belief systems? What do you mean by race? You usually mean color of skin, right? Does my skin have color? Does black people have color skin? Okay, why is that determinative? Well, because the political authorities decided that it's determinative. It's not because there's any reality. There is, there is nothing that flows from the color of your skin in terms of behavior. Nothing maybe getting sunburned or something like that or absorbing vitamin D, but that doesn't determine your behavior. The whole essence of racism is that biology determines your behavior and that's wrong. Uh, whether you're talking about Jews or black people or white people, that's not, uh, that's not what I believe. I think it's an irrational uh, belief system. And I think if you, if you, uh, play into it either from the white side or the black side, you're going to be part of a dialectic that you will never solve. You will get sucked into an, an eternal conflict situation, which cannot be resolved. You there, Jesse? All right, he, he tuned out. Okay, thank oh. you so much. You're welcome. All right, uh, thanks, Jesse. Okay, let's do uh, let's do one more here, and then we can jump to uh, the chat in Cozy as well as Rumble. So you guys start asking your questions now via text, and we'll be right to you. Let's see, uh, Chicago talk show host, go ahead. Hey, Dr. Jones, great show today. So breaking news, uh, there's this video game that's really popular with a lot of the youth and Gen Z, it's called Fortnite. And it's just breaking out that uh, they're adding a Holocaust museum to the video game. Your thoughts, please. The, the Holocaust determines every narrative here. This is so, that, that story I told you about uh, Kim Iverson trying to make sense of Bobby Kennedy, the guy she's talking with says, well, it's the Holocaust. The Holocaust determines the meaning. It is the myth, the founding myth of the American empire. If, as I believe, the American empire began at, uh, after World War II, when America basically took over half the world to, and fought the Soviet Union. So 
that's why it's important, and they're not going to stop. The Jews who, I've already talked about Biden's minion, that's 10 people. There are 457 Jews in the Biden administration now, and they are going to determine American policy in the interest of the Jews. And one of the main characters there doing that is Debbie Lipstadt, who created the term Holocaust denial, okay, to punish people who uh, won't accept her cockamamie ideas like uh, Benjamin Vilkomirsky's book, uh, Fragments. So that's, they're the people in charge. They are now going to use the power of the federal government to enforce the Holocaust narrative on everyone because they know they're losing. They're losing the mind of the American people, and that's why it's going to become mandatory, and that's why you're hearing more and more about the Holocaust. Okay, I think, uh, thanks, Chicago Talk Show host. All right, uh, next segment, we're jumping to questions in chat. And I think I'm gonna start here on Cozy. We had a question from Dr. Dan, a uh, question, Dr. Jones. Have you ever met with Bishop Barron? He often talks uh, about beauty and he also talks about logos. No, I haven't met with him personally. He gave a speech at Notre Dame and uh, I went to the speech, so I've been in the same room with him. Uh, and the speech uh, wasn't bad. And to, to his credit, he uh, attacked Notre Dame for uh, the Land of Lake statement when Father Hesburgh stole Notre Dame from the Catholic Church and put it, uh, privatized it and basically put it in the name of uh, a private corporation. So he criticized that. Uh, he has uh, many good ideas, but uh, he, he fell down when he interviewed Ben Shapiro and, uh, you know, couldn't bring himself to say that uh, Baptism is necessary for salvation. So in that sense, he failed as a bishop. But other than that, he, he also did a review of uh, Oppenheimer, which wasn't bad. Uh, he brought up the whole uh, fact that uh, the dropping the bomb on Nagasaki and Hiroshima were war crimes, which is something we all have to keep in mind. Uh, so, you know, good for him when he gets it right. And Dr. Jones, for uh, the people who don't know who are listening, um, what's the significance of the Land of Lake statement? And also, what's this, your role in that whole statement? Uh, so, uh, the Land of Lake statement was made in 1967 when Hesburgh, got up, who was president of the university, got a whole bunch of people together and said, no authority outside the Catholic, outside the university should tell the university what it can do. Well, this was complete. Uh, hypocrisy on Hesburgh's part because the moment he said that he was licking the boots of the Rockefellers and other big foundations for money and they were calling the tune so it was complete hypocrisy on his part and that is what happened to Notre Dame it ceased to be Catholic at that point and it became a, a politi the politically correct university that it is today now my role in that was uh, uh, basically exposing uh, the Rockefeller connection. Uh, Charlie Rice had done this before uh, the late law school professor, but I went to the Rockefeller archives and found out that the Rockefellers paid for uh, a, a series of secret conferences, their word, secret, uh, to undermine the church's teaching on contraception. So I established completely without any shadow of a doubt that Hesburgh was working for the Rockefellers against the interest of the Catholic Church uh, for money. That simple. There you are. And it took, it took Barron and everyone else at Notre Dame how many years to kind of Well, it's what, 67 to, to now. It's almost 60 years. And are. now they, they had to admit, like um, Mr. McGreevy, 
who is a, 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 one of those guild prophets, uh, academics, uh, had to admit that there was subversion, the Rockefellers were subverted. I, I held his feet to the fire at a conference at Notre Dame. He had to admit that. So it, it's spreading. Uh, but the biggest proof that uh, Notre Dame is no longer Catholic is the, 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 the things that the Holy Cross priests are saying. The beginning of this uh, last year's fall semester, this father, some Holy Cross priest said we had to support transgenderism. If you're a good Catholic, you've got to support transgenderism in Notre Dame. The, out of his own mouth, he condemns himself. From a, a user on Cozy, uh, can American Catholics morally implement quotas that dictate Irish and German must be minorities or majorities? You mean in Ireland and Germany or in America? I, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm assuming I'm assuming in those nations. Here, uh, in either Ireland or Germany. I don't think anybody should have quotas. I, th I think that they, they should stop the illegal immigration in Ireland. They need to uh, get a government in that's going to protect the Irish people. But quotas, uh, if you're talking about quotas, uh, you're saying that there's something legitimate about the, 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 the people being there. And if they're illeg illegal immigrants, there's nothing legitimate about them. They're being weaponized to overthrow the, the to, to ethnically cleanse the Irish people. So, no, I don't think quotas would, would solve that problem at all, even if they favored the Irish and the Germans. All right, a uh, question from Catulus. Uh, I know a guy who hasn't confessed for two years now, um, having difficulty reviewing all his sins of that period. Any advice? Yeah, go to confession, be honest. You can't hold back with something like that. It's all or nothing. You have to be completely honest about the state of your soul. And if you're not completely honest, the, the, it's not magic, it won't work. There will, you will, your sins will not be forgiven and you'll be tied up in knots. Uh, and you, you'll, you just won't get any type of uh, forgiveness. So, you know, I don't know what the problem is. You go, you go to confession, you're anonymous there. You should be anonymous behind a screen. The, the, the priest has probably heard all the sins that you've committed many more times than you have. And so we, there's nothing to be afraid of. And secondly, if you don't do it honestly, you, you're not going to be relieved from the guilt that's crippling you. This is what I just said here about Oppenheimer should, is uh, an endorsement of sacramental confession. And it comes on the heels of what I said about Nathaniel Hawthorne, which is another endorsement of sacramental confession. Or the other way of putting it, if you don't have that possibility, which non-Catholics do not have, and Jews certainly don't have, uh, you're going to be uh, an emotional cripple. And you're going to be seeking relief. You're going to be looking for forgiveness in all the wrong places. And that's exactly what Oppenheimer did. He had to go to the communist confessional or the Zionist confessional to make himself feel good uh, by spreading the secrets, uh, the atomic bomb to the Soviet Union and Israel. All right. From uh, WZ10997 on Cozy. Uh, any thoughts on Sinead O'Connor? I always hoped she'd find her way back to the church. I liked her, to be honest. Yeah, um, Geraldine Comiskey just did a nice article on on uh, Sinead O'Connor and she, uh, the tragic the tragic princess of Ireland. Uh, yeah, it's a sad story. Uh, but uh, I mean, let's let's be honest here. It kind of it epitomizes Ireland. 
This is the state of Ireland right now, and it's what happens to you when you abandon the Catholic faith that uh, can forgive your sins. You become a, a cripple, you become a basket case, you become metal, and you, you end up with uh, serial affairs with men, uh, different men. I mean, to her credit, she did not procure an abortion, so she had that child, and there's that tragic picture of her there in her hijab. She apparently became a Muslim because she needed some type of external control of her life, standing next to the child who she said was the only person who loved her unreservedly in life. It's tragic. He committed suicide, and then I think she committed suicide. So this is a, a, a maynay tackle, a, 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 a cautionary tale for Ireland. If you don't want to end up like Sinead O'Connor, go back to church and go to confession. Now, Dr. Jones, you, you knew her ex-husband, right? Yeah, you John know? Waters, one of her husbands, one of the fathers of one of her child, now, children. Did, did he ever talk of her? Did you... No, John is, uh, they're, they're hounding John for interviews now in the wake of his death, and he just, just, just doesn't want to talk about it. So, you know, that's, John could certainly write an article on it, but it, Apparently doesn't want. He uh, had a child with uh, Sinead O'Connor, and there was a, bag, a big uh, custody battle, and he won because uh, I think the court felt that she was uh, incompetent to, it wasn't in the best interest to have her as the primary caregiver, and so John got control of the child. Tragic story, tragic story. Uh, let's, not, let's not go down that path, and let's end up with a happy ending to our life. Yeah. By doing the right thing. And just one more quick anecdote, Dr. Jones. If if you've see, I mean, you've seen that clip of SNL when she ripped apart the picture of uh, right. John Paul II. If you look closely, she's wearing a necklace with the Star of David on it. Uh, seriously. So was she Jewish at that time period? Was, did she have any Jewish connection? Maybe she was. She became a Muslim later on, so maybe she thought she was Jewish at that point. That's a good. I didn't know that. So the, I'm saying hearing this for the first time. I'm sure John Waters could say something about that, but, you know, I don't know. Okay. The answer is I don't know. All right. Uh, back to chat here. Okay. Kingfish AF. Um, Dr. Jones, uh, how do you go about learning another language? Well, you start, first of all, you're in a good situation, the better than I was when I had to learn German, because computers are a great way to learn language. So you start off with a computer uh, you learn the basics, you learn the grammar, you learn the pronunciation, which you don't learn from reading a book, and then you go to the country. It's that simple. So you have to take the plunge at some point or other, and then once you're there, uh, you start speaking at the basic level, and you make yourself understood, and gradually you become fluent in the language. So I was there for in Germany for, for three years, and uh, I'd say after the first year, I felt comfortable. But for the first year, I was exhausted. I mean, every day uh, I'd come home. Like, I, I had to, I was teaching, uh, I had to do PTA meetings. I'd come home and I was absolutely exhausted from the strain of trying to understand people and trying to communicate. But it only lasted for a year. So that's my advice. All right, we got a question from Rumble from uh, Take No Skills. Uh, should other presidents like Obama and Bush and even Biden be able to be taken into court now that a precedent has been set with Trump. <laughs> what? Of course. This is one of the points that Alan Dershowitz made in his analysis of the indictment of Trump is basically who isn't guilty. 
And Jack Smith is guilty of the very thing that he's accusing Trump of because it's an abuse of the law. You're twisting the law for political purposes. And so once you do that, well, who isn't? Who isn't liable <laughs> to be indicted? Because the law has no meaning whatsoever other than that the, the powerful people want to get rid of you. This is the end of the rule of law. So, of course, they could. Of course, they could. Uh, from a user on Cozy. Uh, EMJ, you're an old timer. Uh, what are we going to Thank do? You. <laughs> what, what are we going to do without you when you pass? <laughs> who, who are your understudies? <laughs> That's your problem. Oh no! <laughs> this is the second. Question well, okay. We I, I mean, what, first of all, what did? Uh, uh, if I die tomorrow, there are all these books that you can read, which are probably better than what I'm saying right now because the the the, the formulation is more exact. But the only reason I have anything to say now is because I did the research that led to those books. So when I'm dead, those books will still be around and there will be people, hopefully, who they make sense. The books make sense. I provide paradigms that can be applied elsewhere, like the Jewish revolutionary spirit is a paradigm that explains things that leave people in general tied in knots whenever they try and address the Jewish issue. So that's what will, that's what will, that's what will, be here after I'm dead and gone. There you are. Fidelitypress.org. That's where we get all the Yes, books. you can start now. <laughs> Buy the book now and start reading it. And then if you've got a question, you can actually ask me uh, before I die. So thanks, thanks for your uh, concern. God knows how much longer I have in this life, but, you know, the books will be there. Uh, from user on Cozy. Um, does the film Oppenheimer glorify Jews in the minds of normies? No, I think it's a, I think it's a subtle critique of the Jews. I think this is Nolan trying to be sly here, uh, and Nolan's kind of appalled at what happens when you let these Jews take control. And I think I think that uh, that's exactly I think that's why it's a, a, a movie that is relevant today because of what I read to you about. The, the fact that we're now, you let the Jews, uh, uh, Blinken and these people run the government, and now we're on the brink of nuclear war once again. So when are we going to learn this lesson? All of this back and forth about, you know, Israel this and this, that, and the other thing, and I know Jews and blah, blah, blah. It's, the fact is unavoidable. We're on the brink of nuclear war once again. And it was the Jews who put us there, who put that bomb in that airplane, who created that bomb that killed all those innocent people in Japan. Do we want that thing to happen again? Well, if you do, the best way is to follow uh, Mr. Blinken and Ms. Newland uh, to the nuclear abyss. On Rumble from Thomas Quadruple 07, uh, has Dr. Jones heard of the book Topsoil? Uh, yeah. Topsoil and Civilization? If so, what does he think of its importance? I don't know the book. All right, he's, he suggests... I'm in favor of Topsoil, though. There you go. There you are. Uh, he, he suggests that you take a look. Um, okay, thank you. Yeah. Uh, from from Woke Art on uh, Cozy, you know, Oppenheimer grossed uh, $188 million domestically. Uh, how do we break America's worship of the Jews? 
Well, this is the cunning of reason, I think. I mean, this is a Jewish production. I mean, if you're a Jew and you're kind of myopic, which most Jews are, you think, oh, we're such great people. We're so smart, blah, blah, blah. But then you look at it and you think, well, is that great that you incinerated 70,000 Japanese people? They're conspicuous by their absence from this film, uh, you know? Uh, and I think this is, this is what... Uh, Christopher Nolan is trying to tell us in a subtle way. I don't think they're making the Jews look good. I think it's the opposite. Um, from S-C-O-S-O-Sosko, uh, Dr. Jones, uh, were Hiroshima and Nagasaki chosen targets due to their concentration of Christian populations? That's good. Good question. I think it is. There's a, there's a book that uh, my assistant just gave me about... Uh, suffering, the, the Catholics who died. And it's, I didn't put it in the review because it, it's too subtle. It's too sophisticated. It's too spiritually deep. It, go, it belongs in a book like uh, Christus in Dachau, where you have the spiritual consciousness and you understand the purpose of suffering and you understand that sometimes there's a victim that can provide expiation for sin. And those sinless Catholics there who died, those nuns who died there, uh, I think it's the gist of that book is that their, their, their death brought about the end of the Second World War, that it wouldn't have happened without their death. This is depth, deep spiritual thought. It's in Christus and Dachau, and that is the end of the Holocaust narrative, which will be out soon. And I, I think you could apply the same thing to Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Uh, uh, but I didn't do it in the review of Oppenheimer. Uh, from Juan Diego on Cozy. Now, he didn't have this as a question, but I'll form it as a question because it seems interesting. Uh, uh, Dr. Jones, uh, did you know that Zionists in Brazil are now defaming you on social media? So have you heard anything from, from that? No, but yeah. I'm not surprised. I mean, they, they, oh, why wouldn't they defame me? They defame me here, so why wouldn't they do it there? Is it, you have a recent, what, the Libido Dominandi is out Libido now? Libido Dominandi has been translated into Portuguese. Uh, that is not, uh, that really doesn't talk a lot about Jews. That's before I wrote The Jewish Revolutionary Spirit, but the, the whole story of Wilhelm Reich is in there. Uh, uh, so I guess that's why they're upset. Uh, 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 certainly they've, they've seen my podcast about the Israelis taking over Ramallah and broadcasting pornography. That's become a, a, a really important incident that I think the, the Jews and certainly the Israelis would like everyone to forget about. But it's a seminal uh, point here. And it came, ironically, it, it happened one year after the publication of Libido Dominati. So it was a, a, a tremendous substantiation of my thesis, I kind of proved me right after the fact. It's like, you know, uh, some great scientific theory and suddenly it's proved right by experiment. And that's exactly what happened there. So I think that's, I'm not surprised that Zionists would attack me in, in Brazil. The Zionists are Zionists, no matter where they are. From Infinity Gauntlet on Rumble, uh, Dr. Jones, any comment on the persecution of the Orthodox Church in Ukraine by the Zelensky regime? Yeah, this is a totalitarian, godless regime uh, run by Jews who have no qualms about collaborating with the Nazis, uh, but 
part of the ancestral identity of Jews is the Ashkenazi here uh, is memories of the pogroms in Poland under the czar that basically drove them out of the Ukraine. The Ukraine was the pale of the settlement. So that's where they came from and they emigrated to America, like the Newlands family and so on. And now they want vengeance. They've never forgotten. They never forgive. They never forget. And now they're coming back and they want vengeance against Russia. That's what's, that's what, what's driving this war. That's the hidden grammar here that's driving this war. It's uh, animus, ancestral animus against the Russian people. And so the Orthodox Church is obviously Russian, and so therefore they are going to be uh, persecuted. All right, uh, 607, do a couple more here? Yeah, two more. All right. Um, uh, from Haslittle on Cozy, uh, question. How do you respond to people who say that we had to nuke Japan to end the conflict? They're wrong. They're wrong. You can, first of all, it's, it's uh, consequentialism, which is the theory basically that the end justifies the means. There is no justification whatsoever for taking innocent life whether it's dropping a nuclear bomb or uh, performing an abortion. There is no good that can compensate for that. And so, therefore, it's a, f a false argument. Uh, that's the end of the discussion. That's really all you have to say. You can't, and I'm saying that the Jewish participation in this uh, came about because, well, abortion is a fundamental Jewish value, and they don't believe that. They don't have that sense of logos that you need in order to use uh, power properly. Werner Heisenberg did, and the Jews who stole, uh, who appropriated his physics did not. That simple. And, and that's why Heisenberg is the hero of this story, and Oppenheimer is the villain. No matter what the propaganda says, that's the real story. All right, and last question here from Cozy. That's Gail Groeper. Uh, Dr. Jones, what's your favorite Irish legend and why? That you, you just caught me by surprise there. Um, I, 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 I'd have to think about that. I, I can't even give you something off the top of my head. Sorry. All right, well, we'll think about it for next week, I guess. All right. All right. All right. Okay, thanks, everybody. Once again, EMJ Live every Friday at 5 for you guys who stumbled on this podcast. Uh, if you're not already, subscribe to Culture Wars magazine. That's culturewars.com. Get all the books at fidelitypress.org. Subscribe to tele Telegram, the BitChute, the Gab, the Cozy. You guys know what to do. Uh, any final words, Dr. Jones? Just, you know, thanks for being on here. The, the podcasts get better and better every week. The conscious logos is rising. The con you can feel the consciousness. Just to give you one instance, uh, you know, <laughs> I'm at the dentist's. You know, you don't usually engage in conversation at the dentist's office. So then my wife gets in the chair and the dentist brings me in and she wants a lecture on the Holocaust while my wife's teeth are getting drilled. And this is, this is consciousness spreading, okay? It's happening as we speak, so let's continue. All right, thanks guys, you have a good one. See you next week.